This episode starts with a mystery. In a New York City hospital in the 1880s, a German immigrant named Fred Stein has a tumor in his neck that he just can't get rid of. His doctors are sure it'll kill him, but it doesn't. Instead, he contracts a nasty skin infection. So now his doctors are sure that's going to kill him. But it doesn't. Instead, his tumor disappears completely, and Fred Stein walks out of the hospital and gets back to his life. Fast forward a few years to 1891. A surgeon named William Coley tracks down Fred Stein. He has a theory that the bacterial infection destroyed Stein's tumor, and he wants to try and recreate that effect with other cancer patients. His first patient is a man with a severe sarcoma. He has a massive tumor in his throat, that's so big he can barely eat or speak or even breathe. So Coley starts making cuts on the patient's body and rubs bacteria into them. The first few attempts don't go anywhere, but then Coley uses a stronger bacterial strain and his patient gets really sick, but makes a full recovery and the sarcoma practically melts away. William Coley called this bacterial treatment Coley's toxins. He didn't really understand how it worked, the effects weren't consistent, and the medical establishment was skeptical. But these experiments would ultimately help lay the groundwork for some of the most cutting-edge cancer therapies more than a century later. Nobody believed that you could actually use your own immune system to detect and kill cancer at the time. And this concept was really dismissed, I think, until the early 2000s. Today, doctors can harness your own immune system to fight cancer, and they can also sequence your DNA to determine which immunotherapy drug will work best for you. Today's episode is not about one specific drug. It's all about this kind of cutting-edge medicine. It's targeted. It's personalized. And it's dramatically changing the way that we think about cancer. I'm Shannon Murphy, and this is Invisible Forces. It's an original podcast from Jefferies where we track the surprising and sometimes unlikely moments of investment and innovation that have led to some of medicine's biggest breakthroughs. Stay with us as we explore how Coley's dismissed experiment, a 13-year-long collaboration spanning continents, and decades of research in two different fields in the face of a lot of skepticism have led to this. There are two major threads that we're going to follow that ultimately come together to power the amazing breakthroughs in cancer therapy that are happening today. Cancer is still one of the leading causes of death worldwide, but our ability to treat it has grown by leaps and bounds. Cancer is especially difficult to treat because it tricks our immune system into thinking cancer cells are healthy cells. Doctors used to treat cancer only according to the location of the disease. Skin cancer, kidney cancer, prostate cancer, each had their own list of possible treatments. And in extreme cases, an amputation of the affected area was an option. In the early 2000s, scientists learned how to train the body's immune system to recognize some cancer cells and fight them. Some worked remarkably well, but these weren't precise treatments. And it wasn't clear why they worked on some patients, but not others. But then, doctors at Johns Hopkins found a new and far more effective way to treat cancer. They discovered it was possible to categorize cancers based on something that was invisible to the naked eye, a tumor's genetic profile. It was a revolutionary moment in oncology. 
This has been a game changer for patients who were otherwise not curable. Niha Zaidi is a medical oncologist at the Johns Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's working on some of the most cutting-edge work in oncology. Patients who were otherwise not curable were told that they had no more options. They were we were seeing cures in some people. And, you know, patients, basically cancers that were previously death sentences, like advanced melanoma, these, you know, we were not only seeing cures, we were also seeing this more as a chronic disease. So it's made a huge impact in certain types of cancers. We'll hear more from Niha shortly. But first, let's talk about the two major threads that had to come together to make this possible. It required the perseverance of scientists from two totally different disciplines. Scientists who were ahead of their time and faced an enormous amount of skepticism. So let's get started with the first thread we're going to follow, immunology. At the top of the show, you heard about William Coley and his toxins. Coley dedicated his life to trying to save people from cancer. One of his first patients was a young woman named Bessie Daschle. She had a hand injury that wouldn't heal, and it turned out to be an aggressive bone tumor, a sarcoma. At the time, the only real treatment for sarcoma was amputation. So that's how Bessie was treated, and she lost her arm. Unfortunately, the sarcoma had already metastasized and spread, and less than three months after her arm amputation, Bessie died. Coley was devastated. Bessie's death spurred him to find better, more effective treatments for cancer. His research led him to Fred Stein, whose disappearing tumor kicked off the episode. So 100 years ago, William Coley believed we could somehow harness the power of our own immune system to beat cancer. But nobody could prove it, and there was limited understanding of how it could possibly work. And around the same time, another scientist was having more consistent results with radiation treatment on tumors. So Coley's toxins fell by the wayside for decades. Even though he didn't fully understand it, what William Coley was doing was an early form of immunotherapy, a type of cancer treatment that activates your own immune system to fight the disease. What he couldn't have known while he was rubbing bacteria into cancer patients' wounds was how it helped the patients recover. It wasn't until the 1970s that someone discovered a big piece of this puzzle. Dr. Ralph Steinman was a researcher at Rockefeller University. He wanted to figure out exactly how our immune system gets triggered to respond to an illness. He discovered something called dendritic cells. They're like sentinels. They sound the alarm and stimulate the body's immune response. At the time, scientists were still figuring out how to manipulate our internal healing systems. But Ralph's discovery helped shape the whole field of immunology for decades to come. Here's where Neha Zaidi becomes a bigger part of our story. She joined Ralph's lab in 2010. He was an incredible man, incredible mentor, incredible scientist. And he had made a really pivotal discovery. He discovered a really important type of immune cell. These cells, they're just the center of the immune system. Ralph believed it was possible to harness the power of our own immune systems to beat cancer. But many were still skeptical. He had to face a lot of opposition for many years. He talked about that when we were in our lab. He was just committed to the science. He was committed to, you know, activating our own immune system. Like William Coley before him, Ralph Steinman would not live to see his discoveries fully celebrated in the science community. Throughout the time Neha was working with Ralph, he was fighting pancreatic cancer. He died in 2011. 
A few days after his death, the announcement came. Ralph had won a Nobel Prize for his work in immunology. He was just a true inspiration, and he foresaw this whole wave of immunotherapy, I think, because he was really committed to this concept. Remember, this story has two main components. We'll come back to immunology in a few minutes. But first, we're going to pick up the other thread, genomics. And don't worry, you'll understand how this all connects back to cancer therapies in a minute. The first gene sequencing, you know, sequencing little either individual genes or little bits of the human genome or other genomes from other organisms, that really kicked off in the 1970s and the 1980s. Neville Sanjana is a core faculty member at the New York Genome Center and also an assistant professor of biology at NYU. So we were already collecting little bits of sequence. But the Human Genome Project, as we know it today, formally started in 1990, I believe. And that really kicked off a beautiful worldwide scientific collaboration, in some cases a scientific race between certain groups. And in the early 2000s, I think formally in 2003, we had a full human genome, one full human genome. Humans had finally unlocked the code that makes us us. We talked a bit about the Human Genome Project earlier this season. It represented an enormous investment from governments and private institutions from multiple countries. Most of the funding came from government organizations in the U.S. and the U.K. It cost about $6 billion in today's dollars, and it would take over a decade to unlock. And at the time, there was a lot of skepticism about whether all of those resources would be worth it. But in retrospect... I think this was cheap. <laughs> I think this is one of the greatest achievements that humans as a species have made to understand, I mean, fundamentally understanding life and what, what makes us us, you know, to me, I think this is, there's undoubtedly worth it. If you look at today and you look at what's happening in biotech, none of that would be possible without the human genome. My colleague, Mike Yee, agrees that the Human Genome Project was one of the most important investments in modern medicine. He's a managing director and biotech analyst at Jefferies. Basically, the sequencing of the human genome gave us the whole encyclopedia of words all at once. And now, now that we have the map, now that you got to go out and use that map and try to find the treasure. So scientists now had access to that all-important code, that treasure map. But there was another important benefit, too. The sequencing technology itself. Not just the map, but the tools that had to be developed to create the map. So that's thread number two. Let's see now how that weaves together with the other important element of our story, immunology, to create the revolution of personalized oncology we're seeing today. It's 2012, and Niha Zaidi's colleagues are busy gathering results from their latest immunotherapy trials at Johns Hopkins. In the colorectal cancer group, there were 14 patients who were enrolled in this clinical trial, and only one patient out of those 14 patients had this exceptional response to this immunotherapy drug. So this was very interesting, obviously. You know, one of 14, why did this one patient respond, and why did the other 13 not respond? The Human Genome Project improved sequencing technology to the point where scientists can sequence the DNA of a patient's tumor in a clinical setting. It took 13 years to sequence one complete human genome the first time around. And by 2012, it only takes a week. So the team sends a sample of this standout patient's tumor for sequencing. They looked at this patient's tumor tissue. They looked at the genetic makeup of this patient. 
this patient had a genetic alteration, a biomarker is what we call it, that made this patient more susceptible to immunotherapy drugs. And this biomarker is called uh, mismatch repair deficiency. So this one patient had something different about it, a different, you know, immune makeup to the cancer, a different genetic alteration. The team was so excited about this finding that they even wrote an academic paper outlining their idea. The researchers suggested that tumors with this particular genetic trait would be especially responsive to immunotherapy. The journal rejected their paper, calling it speculative. But the team didn't give up. They started another trial, a bigger one, to investigate this genetic profile called mismatch repair deficiency. That was a larger clinical trial that was led by Dr. Yang Lee here at Johns Hopkins. And they tested this in patients who either had the mismatch repair deficiency or those who didn't. And those who had mismatch repair deficiency responded twice as well. Like these were really impressive responses, more than what we've seen before. So impressive, in fact, that the FDA fast-tracked approval of a brand new way of using an immunotherapy drug that Merck had developed years earlier. It was called pembrolizumab. This led to the FDA approving pembrolizumab, or anti-PD-1, using an accelerated approval pathway for any solid cancer. So breast cancer, gastric cancer, colorectal cancer, no matter what the origin of the cancer was if they had the specific genetic feature called mismatch repair deficiency, they would be eligible for this kind of treatment. Pembrolizumab had already been in use for a few years, but it was only prescribed for a few very limited types of cancer. This was different. This was the first time an immunotherapy drug had been approved for treatment based on the genetic profile of the cancer. It completely revolutionized how scientists approach cancer treatment. Rather than focus on where the cancer is located, doctors could now consider the genetic makeup of a patient's tumor and start there. I think this is really changing the way we're thinking about cancer. So a lot of our treatments have become more personalized. So when a patient comes into our clinic, for example, with you know, newly diagnosed pancreatic cancer, one of the first things we do is to take a biopsy, take a tissue sample, and send it for sequencing. This was made possible by all the research done by immunologists and by the investment governments and companies put into the genomic sequencing technology. That has been kind of one of the biggest game changers in cancer research. Now I have to say it's become, you know, now we can routinely sequence people and it's not that expensive. So over the years it has, sequencing has become less, less expensive and more routine. The Human Genome Project was key. Six billion dollars well spent. Today, sequencing technology has come so far that it only costs around $200 to sequence a person's DNA. But that initial investment in that project was obviously critical into, you know, getting us where we are today. Geneticist Neville Sanjana believes there's even more on the horizon. It was a tremendous investment we made in ourselves for our own future. You know, people are going to look back in 20, 30, 50 years on the, the kind of medicine that's available today and just think it's barbaric. 
Back at Johns Hopkins, Niehaus working towards what could be oncology's next big milestone. You see, as promising as it is, immunotherapy still only treats about 20% of cancers. Now we're tackling the rest of the 80%. And can we convert these cancers to look more like the ones that do respond to immunotherapy? Niha and her team want to turn targeted immunotherapy into something even more remarkable. They want to use personalized vaccines to generate an immune response in those other 80% of cancer patients who wouldn't otherwise respond to immunotherapy. Now, these aren't preventative vaccines. These personalized vaccines teach the immune system to attack the specific cancer cells that have mutated over time and in a patient's body. What we can do is we can have a patient come into our clinic, we can take a tumor biopsy, we can look at the genetic sequences, figure out which mutations they have, which mutations are expressed, and which mutations may actually be helpful in generating an immune response. And we can actually use that data and generate a personalized vaccine based on that specific patient's tumor. Right now, Niha's focusing her efforts on pancreatic cancer. That's the cancer that killed Ralph Steinman, her mentor who inspired her to pursue this work all those years ago. We want to improve, you know, the quantity of life, but we also want to improve the quality. And we're really seeing that now, at least with a subset of patients. And that's really rewarding. And I think, you know, every incremental step that we take is getting us closer to our bigger goal. And it's going to take more than one person, more than one institution. You know, we're really now starting to find that, you know, more collaboration, more team science, bringing in, for example, mathematicians and, you know, other disciplines. Is there a future where all cancers can be treated with immunotherapy thanks to genomic sequencing and personalized vaccines? Could chemotherapies become one of those out-of-date treatments that, as Neville suggested, future generations will look back on and consider barbaric? Niha's hopeful. It's a big goal, but it's going to take a force to get there. But I think we are making steps towards that goal. My colleague Mikey believes we have the right ingredients to make the next big break in fighting disease. I think with the combination of where the understanding uh, of the genetic cause of diseases as well as the technological advancement of some of these uh, platforms, I think that combination of all that will lead us to some serious cures over the next decade. Now, I'll leave you with the fact that imagine if we do have a great advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning so that the power of computing and the power of data will be able to turbocharge where we're going. I think that's possible. I will say we're early in some of those areas. I think we're very early, but uh, certainly optimistic about where the next 10 and 20 and 30 years are going. But what if William Coley hadn't noticed that a bacterial infection could shrink a tumor? What if all of those countries and institutions hadn't cooperated and made a $6 billion, 13-year bet that they could sequence the human genome? What if the Johns Hopkins oncologists hadn't pressed on after their paper was rejected for being too speculative? It's this alchemy of innovation and investment that's changing the future of cancer treatment. You've been listening to Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. I'm Shannon Murphy, and this episode marks the end of Season 3. I want to thank all of the experts and speakers who taught us so much this season— especially my colleagues Will Sevish, Mike Yee, and Brian Tanklet. And thank you for listening. 
For more information about this season, please visit jeffreys.com slash invisible forces. Talk to you again soon. This podcast may not be distributed or reproduced. The podcast is not research, a recommendation, or an offer to buy or sell. It is provided for information only. Views constitute best judgment as of the published date and may change without notice. The data used is not independently verified. No representation is made as to accuracy, including as to future events or reasonableness of assumptions. Views are those of the individuals identified. Jeffries and its agents are not liable for damage from the podcast. Jeffries is not providing advice as to legal, tax, accounting, or other matters. Additional disclaimers are on jeffries.com.